Good morning, church. We're continuing our uh, counterculture series, and we are, we are leading up to Missions Day, so I would like everybody to just keep in mind that next week we're going to have an opportunity to take a special contribution for you to support the work of Whites Ferry Road all over the world. My hope is that uh, the message today kind of gets your heart and mind headed in that direction. We're going to be speaking today about racism. If you're joining us online, welcome. If you're a visitor, welcome. If you attend regularly, welcome back. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, I want to cover a little bit of the history of racism and racial rulings in the Supreme Court so that we have a better context for our discussion on racism today. So I hope you got your pens handy because all of this stuff would be really interesting to go back over uh, in the days ahead as you're really trying to think spiritually and evangelistically about the community in which you live. In 1986, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Plessy versus Ferguson. This is the famous separate but equal segregation policy. And the court stated that segregation was legal and constitutional as long as, quote, the facilities were equal, which is where we derive our separate but equal segregation language. That was in 1896. About 60 years later, Brown versus the Board of Education in Topeka in 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that Plessy versus Ferguson was actually unconstitutional. The separate but equal ruling, according to the Supreme Court, was, quote, a denial of the equal protection under the law. So if you're doing the math, 1954 was about 70 years ago. So if you're of the age range of about late 60s or early 70s, you were alive while these things were being debated in the highest courts of our land. Let me take you 10 years later to a case called Loving versus the state of Virginia that was ruled by the Supreme Court in 1967. So we're talking out people in their late 50s, early 60s would have been alive at the time this case is ruled. Loving versus Virginia was a Supreme Court decision made on the prohibition of interracial marriages in the 16 remaining states in 1967 that did prohibit interracial marriages. The state of Louisiana was one of those states. In 1967, Loving versus Virginia was ruled on in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that the prohibition on interracial marriage was unconstitutional. Sixteen states that still banned interracial marriage at the time were forced to revise their laws. Now, as I was doing research for this, I actually went to uh, the docket that described the Virginia Circuit Court judges' statements who initially ruled on the case that stated that this marriage, in accordance with the laws in Virginia, was a, 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 a prohibited marriage. So in 1959, when the Virginia Circuit Court, who initially ruled on the case, filed his ruling, he stated his opinion. So this is right around 1960. The Virginia Circuit Court judge who ruled says this about race in the United States of America. This about 55 years ago. Listen. He said, Almighty God created the races white, black, yellow, and red, and He placed them on separate continents. 
And but for the interference of man with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that God separated the races shows he did not intend for the races to mix. This is 55 years ago in the United States of America, a Virginia Circuit Court judge makes this statement as though it is law. So what, what's happening often in our culture and even in our own uh, approach to our spirituality, we're taking our views and we are imposing our views on Scripture and then we are making statements and living in ways that we feel justified based on our thought that the Lord would approve of our particular way of thinking or our particular way of living. And it's been our intent, this series, to challenge you to take a second look at some of the things that you're thinking about some of the most volatile and some of the most hotly contended issues in our nation today. So we're going to look at what actually does the Bible say. Here's a well-educated circuit court judge in 1960, 55 years ago, saying God made distinct races. Those races were on distinct continents because that seems to be the way that God designed it. We shouldn't have interracial marriages, and, and this is now law. Is that, in fact, what Scripture teaches about racism? And if it's not, what does Scripture say? So I want you to turn with me, if you would, into Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 18, and we're actually going to go through verse 20. Now, as we're we're preparing to study what the Bible has to say on racism, I want to remind you of of a reality surrounding uh, the context of the verses we're about to read. The book of Ephesians was written by a guy named Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And Peter... And Paul were probably the two most missional, evangelical missionaries in the history of the church. Peter was kind of the evangelist uh, to the Israelites, God's kind of chosen group of people. And Paul was the missionary or evangelist to the Gentiles, all the other people on the planet. So the Apostle Paul, as he's going from place to place and he's preaching the the forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ for all people, he is coming against thousands of years of strongly held religious views that were also very racially prejudicial. When the Apostle Paul steps into a synagogue, which would have been a gathering place for Jewish Uh, worshipers of God during his day. And he says, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ came not just to save you, but he came to save, save everybody. The Jews of that time would have been up in arms. They were exclusivist. They assumed that because they'd been given the law, they'd been given the commands, they'd been given the regulations of God, that they were a people set apart and that everybody else who wanted to follow God had to essentially convert to their ethnicity and their approach to religion. The Apostle Paul is saying, this is not the case. He was stoned for his values. He was beaten for his values. He was imprisoned for his values. And we're going to pick up some context in some of the Apostle Paul's teaching on race right here in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 18. The Bible says this, For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but what? But fellow citizens 
with God's people and also now members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So we're actually picking up this text midway through a theological discourse made by the Apostle Paul that really starts in verse 13. So to get a clear sense of who it is that we've been given access to the Father by, we've got to back up to verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this, But now in Christ Jesus, that's the hymn referred to in verse 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself, which is Christ, is our peace. And He has made two groups, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians 2.15 But He's done this by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity... Out of two, thus making, I want you to say this with me, peace. I'm going to say that again. Thus making peace. So one of the main prerogatives of the Lord Jesus Christ was not to redeem a specific group or a specific ethnicity or a specific nationality. Jesus Christ came so that the people of Israel and everybody else of those two groups, they could be made one in Christ, and that in being made one, they would experience what is intended for the lives of Christians all over the world, to live in peace. It's so easy to, to, to approach the Scriptures with our preconceived notions or worldviews or philosophies, and assume that this is not talking about anything other than spiritual division. But clearly, the language of the Apostle Paul indicates that through Jesus Christ, everyone of every nation, of every nationality, of every ethnic background was made one and should be brought into peace with one another. So it is through Christ that we have access to the Father, and who is it that the Father wants to access Him? If you've got your pen in hand, you need to write down 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. I'm going to read it to you. The Bible says this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some of us would understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, listen to this, not wanting anyone to perish. I want to read that again for emphasis. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, everyone, everyone to come to repentance. So who is it that God the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, wants to have access to Him? Everybody. Every people, tribe, tongue, nation, skin color, ethnicity, or cultural background. God wants all people under the sun to have access to Him. And the way we access the Father is through Jesus Christ by the Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.18. Here's the principle. We have to have eyes that see spiritual value first. Some of the things I'm going to say during this sermon on immigration and interracial marriage may be unique views to you. They're my views. You don't have to agree. That would also make you wrong. 
But if you want to leave the church knowing that you're wrong and I'm right, I'm okay with that. We have to have eyes that see spiritual value first and maybe even more importantly, spiritual need before we notice physical characteristics and attributes. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians 2.18. And it's also what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. echoed in his I Have a Dream speech. One of the most beautiful quotes on, on an appropriate view of racism is his dream that one day we will judge a man not by the color of his skin, but by the conduct of his character. And when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. makes a statement like that, the reason it seems to reverberate through time is because it really is biblically based. If we are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, if we have been immersed into the family of God, that should transform our whole world from the inside out. And we really should no longer judge a human being by the color of their skin or the place of their ethnic origin or their nationality, but instead by the conduct of their character. And what the whole focus of these sermons has been is not to push those people away, and run from them assuming that their sin or their difference is going to somehow infect us and change the trajectory of our life into an area that we don't want to go down, that we're not comfortable with, but instead to find a way to immerse those same people into the family of God. If we pick up the text starting in verse 19, we get some of the cause and effect language by the Apostle Paul as we've been given access by the Father through the Son, to the Father by the Son through the Spirit. In verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. Wait, wait a second. God, you're telling me, through the writings of the Apostle Paul, that at one point in time, I, Trent, was a foreigner to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's exactly what the text intends to apply. I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. I hope you write that down. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Peter says this to really help us understand what it means to have been a foreigner to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 and 11 says, Dear friends... I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. The Apostle Paul said, at one point in time, in Ephesians 2.19, you were foreigners or strangers. That's the implication. But he says, now you are no longer foreigners or strangers. Why? Because through Jesus Christ, you've been given access to the Father by the Spirit. Now, you're no longer a foreigner or a stranger to God. But based on the writing of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, we are actually still referred to as foreigners and exiles. Except our spiritual citizenship is now in the Lord Jesus Christ as a citizen of God's family. And our foreign relations happen down here on earth because we're in the world but now no longer of the world. And the way that, the, the way that Peter asks us to distinguish ourselves from the world is by living differently by living differently he would say i urge you to abstain from how are we supposed to live differently i urge you to abstain from sinful desires that are literally waging war against that side of you that used to be a citizen of the world now you're a citizen in a new kingdom 
You've got to resist falling back into being a citizen in the old kingdom you were once a part of. And how do we resist? By resisting our sinful desires that are within us. That's the easiest way to discern, am I a member of the citizenship of the family of God, is if I am fighting the battle day in and day out against my own sinful desires. This makes me feel compelled to have a discussion on immigration. Now, if I, if, if I have to do all the preaching and the amening, it's going to take me twice as long, okay? And it's already going to take me a long time, those of you that have heard me speak before. So based on this idea that we all were at one moment in time foreigners and exiles in the kingdom of God, and we've now been given access to God by the Son through the Spirit, how should we view issues like immigration? Well, what I've just been saying is that we should first approach these kinds of issues through a spiritual lens. And if that's the way we look at a hot-button issue like immigration, and if we're approaching that with a spiritual lens, we have to see immigration as an opportunity first for evangelism and as an opportunity to glorify God. That should compel us to have an attitude that welcomes people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and clan to our, to our country as an opportunity to better connect with people throughout the world that desperately need a Savior. But I think, so, I think so often what happens is we look at these issues and we think, man, these people are coming over to our country, they're taking our jobs, they're making our money, and they're sending it out of the United States. What kind of a thought is that? The Lord Jesus Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moths and rust corrupt, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When we approach issues like immigration from a fiscal perspective, what we've done is we've ejected God as, as the most important prerogative and priority in our worldview, and we've inserted money as the most important priority and prerogative in, found, in, in, in shaping our worldview. And that is completely opposite of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not a politician. I'm a preacher. I don't know what to do about that as it relates to how we rule in court or how we elect political officers. But I do know that as a Christian, my view is I want as many people that need to know Jesus Christ as, as I can possibly fit into my life so that I have maximum opportunity to bring people into citizenship of the family of God. Not only are we no longer foreigners, but we're no longer strangers. Jesus says in John 15, 15, I don't call you servants. The servant doesn't know his master's business, but I've called you a friend. And that should be our approach to people who are different than us. Open, an open door to friendship. Not only should we be friendly because we've once been a stranger and now are a friend of Jesus Christ, but we've been literally integrated into God's family and are members of His household, citizens with His people. The Apostle Paul would go so far in Galatians 3.28 as saying this, There's neither Jew or Gentile. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there even male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul uses hyperbole. He goes to the most extreme measure he can at trying to emphasize this truth to the people he's evangelizing. What he's saying is, look, in Jesus Christ, it doesn't even matter what gender you are. 
We are all made one. And the good news for us is it doesn't matter our background or the quantity of sin that used to be in our life or where we're from or what we've done or the thoughts we think in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness for everybody. And we are all made one. And in God's family, we are all equally valued. And that is something our culture and our world teaches directly against. Our culture and our world says it's about how much money you've got. Or it's about how well connected you are, the size of your house, or where you park, or how many degrees you have, or what what level of success you've been able to attain. And the Apostle Paul's culture was not that much different than our own. And what he's saying is, man, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing matters. And in Him, everything and everyone matters. We have been made members of His household. If that's true, if we're all members of the household of God... What are the implications for that on interracial marriage? Interracial marriage. Okay, so one big piece of contention in in Paul's day is that the Jews, the Israelites, had been treated uniquely by God. Hey, wait a second, Paul. You're saying these other people have equal access to God, but didn't God give Moses the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Didn't God choose us as a people through which He would bless all nations through the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah. So doesn't that mean that we're, by logical reasoning then, a little bit better than everybody else? And the Apostle Paul would say, no. So let's talk about a big-time major patriarch in the Israelite, in the history of the Israelite kingdom, a a man named Moses. Okay. Now I want you to go to Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. That's Old Testament. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Moses one of the most powerful patriarchs in the history of the Israelite kingdom. Actually, God one time told Moses in the book of Exodus, I am so sick and tired of these Israelite people sinning and turning against me. I'm just going to destroy them, and I'm going to raise you up and make you a powerful nation. Moses was such a faithful, compassionate guy. In the moment God gives him that choice, he says, No way, God, please, don't elevate me. Forgive the sin of the people and grow us into a deeper relationship with you. The Israelites had a good reason they valued their Mosaic lineage. But if they would have looked closely in the Torah and in the life of Moses, they would have had a better understanding of God's view of racial equality. Okay, so I'm not going to give all the context here, but there's a lady named Miriam and a guy named Aaron, and they're Moses' helpers. They're helping him lead the Israelite people. And in Numbers 12, verse 1, listen to this. Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses. So the people that are, are kind of helping Moses and begin to talk against him because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. So if you're doing a, a read through the Bible in a year and you hit Numbers 12, you're deep in the Torah, you're deep in the Old Testament at this point, and you are, if you're reading at 5 a.m., man, you are tired when you're reading this. In Numbers 12, uh, 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. He had married a Cushite. Next. But if you were to do a study on that word, the, the, the region of Cush, and what the implications were in terms of her nationality, it would open your eyes, I believe, to God's view of interracial marriage. The region of Cush, based on the best scholarship and theology in our time today, says this is the region of modern-day Ethiopia. This would have been a dark-skinned woman that to us would seem like she was black. And Moses' skin would have been lighter 
kind of European looking. He was a Jew. And so there'd have been an obvious difference in his nationality based on the color of his skin and the nationality of his bride based on the color of her skin. And here we see Miriam and Aaron speaking directly against Moses specifically because he had an interracial marriage. So at this point in Scripture, God is given an opportunity based on the speaking of Miriam and Aaron against Moses to demonstrate how he feels about interracial marriage. What God could have done in this situation is he could have told Moses, because they, they had a, one of the closest relationships in all of Scripture, he could have said, Moses, man, look, they're right. You messed up here. You've got to divorce her. You need to find another wife. This wasn't of me. If you read the context, I'm going to skip down to verse 10. What happens is God surrounds Miriam and Aaron with a cloud. And in verse 10, when the cloud lifts from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had been inflicted with a defiling skin disease. What's God's communication as a result of Miriam and Aaron speaking out against Moses' interracial marriage? God says, don't you dare speak against my man for his marriage in that spirit. And to emphasize and illustrate the point, he inflicts her with leprosy, which makes her skin a different color. What color does it make her skin based on the scriptural account? It turns white as snow. So I think two things are really important here. First, God's reaction to Miriam and Aaron's response to Moses' interracial marriage. Based on the scriptures, God's okay with marriages that are interracial. The second thing that I think is really important is Miriam's skin changes to white. And if we track the symbolism of leprosy over time, it's commonly used as a reference to describe sin. So I think at a deeper level what God is saying is, I'm more concerned with the sin in your life than your view of the interracial marriage in your neighbor's life. And that doesn't discriminate based on nation, you're from, ethnic background, or color of skin, black, white, red, or yellow. If you are sinning and more concerned with the status of your neighbor's interracial marriage, then God is displeased with you. So we have to change our views for the, for, the, for the Christian. We've got to understand that we have gained a foundation on the apostles and prophets and most importantly on the Lord Jesus Christ. What's important here in talking about the apostles and prophets is these were guys who evangelized everybody. They didn't discriminate based on ethnicity. They didn't discriminate based on nationality. They didn't discriminate based on color of skin. These guys were on mission from Jesus Christ or from God, and they went about fulfilling God's business without prejudice. And especially in regions like the one we live, where there's been a history of racism and prejudice, it's so easy still to assume that we're at a biblical place with our approach to race and evangelism and non-discrimination based on who we welcome into the kingdom of God, But it's still difficult for us to go about doing ministry the way the apostles and the prophets did who were very relational and spent time with people regardless of race, ethnic background, or nationality, and maybe equally as important, regardless of social class. 
It didn't matter for the apostles or prophets how much money you had or how big your house was or how poor you were or how desperate you were or how healthy you were or how old you were or how young you were. These guys were building relationships like wild animals, connecting with every person they possibly could in hopes of bringing people into citizenship and literally the household of God. Importantly, they did this without, without very many means. They weren't especially wealthy guys. They didn't have great jobs. They weren't particularly well educated. And based on the pull on them in every direction, they didn't have a lot of free time. And they still found a way to connect with and minister to people in the family of God. But not only that, not only have we gained a foundation on the apostles and prophets, but we've been founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings to my mind a, a scripture from Revelation chapter 7. Starting in verse 9, I want to read this to you. Revelation 7, 9. After this, this is John, the revelator, speaking here. He says, After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is John getting a glimpse of heaven. And he's seeing Jesus in his throne room with people of every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. And they were all wearing white robes symbolizing their forgiveness. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What we see in heaven is that that peace and that unity that Jesus Christ intended on starting and cultivating here on earth is fully realized in heaven. And if we're a son or daughter of God, we have to go about attempting to make that equally real here on planet earth. So what does that mean? Pull up that screen, guys, of culture encounter. I want, I want to take this home... What, what are the take-homes for you guys based on the texts that we've read? My hope today has been really to challenge you. Because I think a lot of us would like to think better of ourselves than we actually are. After studying this, I certainly think I had a skewed view of my own self. I want you to remember this, that simple preferences can really easily turn into sinful prejudices. Simple preferences can really easily turn into simple, uh, sinful prejudices. What's that group of people that just kind of makes you cringe when you walk by? Is it people who are poor? Is it people who are black? Is it people who are maybe Mexican migrant workers? Is it people who are really sick? Is it people who are really immersed in sin? And do you have a specific preference? Would you rather be around people that are your same skin color? Or share your same views on politics or scriptural inerrancy and infallibility, are those the people you tend to want to hang out with? And as you self-assess, you have to understand that for the Christian, there is no such thing as a comfort zone. My thinking on this is that there can be no such thing as a comfortable Christian. I think instead of surrounding ourselves with the people we're most familiar with and most comfortable around, we should deliberately seek out those that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I think for me, that's what this idea of the great omission is really all about. That from our worldview as Christians, we omit 
certain groups of people or certain races of people or certain categories of sinful people. And we say and think we're going about doing the Great Commission in the spirit of the greatest command. When from our radar, in terms of who we should be evangelizing, we've completely removed certain individuals. And if the enemy can develop in us a simple preference that turns into a sinful prejudice, then he has Christians locked right where he wants them. Because he can leave people who are starving to get to know Jesus in the midst of their darkness and starvation. God intends to use you. That's the purpose for which you've been created, to love God and to love other people and then to get the opportunity to share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ with them. And then we have been so uh, conditioned to be attracted to the glitz and glamour and money of our culture that it completely shapes how we view these kinds of issues. And instead of viewing them through a spiritual lens from a Christ-centered perspective, it's easy for us to take into account money or convenience or our level of comfort as we decide on things like social policies or how we're going to spend our time or who we're going to connect with. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to transition from the great omission, leaving groups of people off our radar, into really, truly living out the Great Commission. So I'm going to conclude with a prayer, and after I pray, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe there's a group of people that you know you've been needing to reach out to and just have decided to stay too comfortable for too long. Maybe there's something in your life, some sin that's just keeping you from getting clarity from God on who you need to pursue and serve. Or maybe you need to be baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ so you can go about being on mission for God. Whatever your need is, after I pray, while we sing, take an opportunity to respond. Let's pray. Lord God, these views on uh, racism have challenged me and I hope they challenge each of us. And regardless of how much time or finances, God, I pray as we're moving into our missions day and take a special contribution for getting the gospel out all over the world, that you would move on our hearts and allow us to give until it hurts, financially especially, but also in terms of our time and how we build relationships and how we view the world that is right in front of our eyes. God, if anyone has a need or a need for support, or a desire to be baptized into your family, God, I just ask that you would empower them to take the steps required to come forward and let this church surround them and love on them. I ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.